many people out there do you think really understand cyber? About 12. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and this is the Editor's Roundtable. Today, I'm joined by FP contributor Rosa Brooks, a Georgetown University law professor who teaches international law, national security, and constitutional law. Also with me is another FP columnist, Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. And finally, we have David Sanger, national security correspondent for The New York Times and author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Editor's Roundtable, uh, which is broadcast by Foreign Policy from our tiny, stiflingly hot, and really uncomfortable podcast studio located high above DuPont Circle. Uh, Today, joining me for a discussion of the issues that you care about the most is David Sanger of The New York Times, Rosa Brooks of the New America Foundation and Georgetown University, and Corey Shockey of the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Uh, Today, what we'd like to do is we'd like to look at an issue that has been in the news recently and is only going to grow in importance to everybody but is not terribly well understood, and that is the nature of cyber threats. David, you have been one of the leading reporters on these issues for, well, since the beginning of cyber threats. Um, and in the past week, we have seen from the White House an announcement that we have reached an agreement with the Chinese to help cut back on an area that has been a cause of a lot of concern to us, which is the systematic government-aided theft of intellectual property from U.S. companies that then would benefit uh, Chinese businesses. Uh, Yet, within a few days of the announcement of this deal— The director of national intelligence, uh, when asked about it and asked what he thought of it, said he was skeptical. So, you know, the optimism surrounding the deal lasted 72 hours or something like that. Uh, Can you explain that uh, fleeting moment of of optimism and, and why the director of national intelligence might be skeptical? Well, he's skeptical because the agreement, however large or small you might think it is, addresses a pretty narrow slice of what's a really big problem. So what's the universe we're dealing with here? Um, Cyber threats come in many different forms. So there's the theft of credit card data, the kinds of things you saw at Home Depot and Target. So that's sort of criminal activity. Let's set that aside for right now. It's a big problem, but it's one we sort of understand. Okay, There is the theft of intellectual property, Uh, which is the one that the Obama administration has chosen to focus on because there are established rules on this. If uh, somebody plagiarizes, David, from one of your books and publishes it in another language, I'm trying to figure out why they would do this, but if they did it, okay. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Then uh, there are clear rules about 
the theft of the intellectual property in the book. If you do this in a cyber-enabled way, the rules are a lot less clear. And then there's a third problem, which is goes into the category of destructive cyber, essentially. It is what we did to the Iranians, uh, to their um, nuclear facilities at Natanz. It was uh, what the Iranians did to Saudi Aramco, one of the biggest oil producers. This is a kind of attack that actually blows things up. And then, of course, there's espionage. So the agreement that was reached between uh, President Obama and Xi Jinping, the president of China, last Friday covers only the theft of intellectual property, doesn't tell you very much about what the Chinese will do to stop it, is very hard to measure. But it was an accomplishment because until now, the Chinese had not even acknowledged that the theft of intellectual property by cyber means is actually a problem, is actually something that should be stopped. So at least you have them down on record. The director of national intelligence was skeptical because he believes that a lot of this theft is being done by the People's Liberation Army and being turned over to state-owned corporations in China. And he doesn't really believe that Xi Jinping is about to go back home in the midst of an economic crisis and gather everybody together and say, I know you're thinking about the falling stock market. I know you're worried about the unemployment that may happen along our coast. But really, the thing you need to think about is the loss of intellectual property around the world. Do you know anybody? Have you talked to anybody in the wake of this deal who actually believes it's going to do anything? The only thing it's going to do is give the United States a a foothold for the beginnings of what amount to arms control conversations with the Chinese and then with others. So it's really so, not a deal. It's the beginning of a negotiation. It's the beginning. That's right. This is, this is the beginning of a beginning. And the, the analogy I used in The Times the other day, and it has its faults to it, is um, think about the early days of the first nuclear deals when President Kennedy uh, struck a deal with the Soviet Union that banned atmospheric testing of nuclear weapons. It did nothing to stop countries from building nuclear weapons. It did nothing to limit the numbers they could have. It did nothing to stop the missiles they could build. But it simply said, if you're going to go build them, please don't explode them in places where the fallout's going to fall into children's milk. And that's sort of where we are right now in cyber. So, Corey, we're at the beginning of the beginning. Uh, you've worked within a Republican administration. No doubt you've talked to a lot of people in the Republican foreign policy establishment who are advising candidates right now. When you look at that Republican foreign policy establishment, or you can throw in the Democrats, too, if you want, how many people out there do you think really understand cyber? About 12. Do you count Sanger in that group? <laughs> I do count Sanger in that group. Not only because that only leaves eleven. This is getting <laughs> the other eleven, however, are in the great state of California. I'll grant maybe a couple might be in Austin, Texas. Um, maybe a couple in Boston at MIT. Um, I noticed I, that you I, leave out Sanger's alma mater and affiliated institution that is also uh, in the Cambridge area. Indeed, I do leave it out, <laughs> purposely. Um, and, and the reason is that uh, the, 
the Harvard Yard crowd may understand some of the policy of it, but one of the things that makes cyber so difficult and actually makes the nuclear weapons analogy kind of interesting at several levels is that almost nobody understands the technical component of it. And a lot of the people who are trying to work on the policy pieces of it also don't understand the technical component of it. And I, um, what adds into the degree of difficulty in bringing those two communities together is the Snowden revelations and the aftermath of it. Uh, President Obama held a cyber summit out at Stanford several months ago, and, and it was really fascinating for the extent to which it illustrated this problem. The leader of the free world got up on stage and said, the only people you can trust with your data is us. We are the only people who take it seriously. We're not going to share it with anybody. We are uh, never going to help people do invidious things. And then Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, left the stage, and President Obama came up and <laughs> gave a totally disconnected talk about the importance of building back doors into software programs so that the American government can exploit it for espionage purposes that are in your interest, trust me. And it fell completely flat. Um, so, so in addition to the difficulties of the technical challenges, of, of which David Sanger knows well, and the policy challenges, you also have the fact that this is a public-private interface where the private part of it has lost confidence in the government's ability to manage this, goodwill in managing this, and simple capacity and understanding of these problems. This strikes me as a really big problem. Throughout U.S. history, there has been this cooperation between the scientific community and the government community since the beginning, since uh, we were building canals and telegraph. And when we got into World War II, you had... Bell Labs and the other research institutions helping with radars, helping helping to develop with computational capacity that led to the uh, information revolution, ultimately uh, deeply involved in, in helping with the, the nuclear revolution in the United States. And this partnership led to the growth of the United States as a superpower. Some point in the 1990s, we began to break down. On the one hand, we had a group that was calling for smaller government, less government involvement, cooperation with um, the private sector, even some portions of the group, waging a war against science. On the other hand, you had a business community, the Internet, a uh, 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 scientific and technological community led by the Internet moguls who were starting businesses in garages and who didn't really need the government so much. And so they were sort of saying, stay out of our hair. We'll do this on our own. Um, and the result is a growing rift at precisely the moment you need more coordination and sharing because a lot of the the, the really great technical know-how um, that exists in the world is in the private sector, not in those 11 or 12 other people. Rosa, you've been doing a lot of work at New America. You did work when you were in the Defense Department in the policy shop looking at the future of the military. Did you guys identify the, the, um, the gap between the public and the private sectors as a particular threat? I, I do, but I, I have a slightly different take on it. I, I think that the 
the allegations of mutual mistrust between uh, the telecoms, the internet companies, et cetera, Silicon Valley and the government, I think are a little bit overstated. I think some of that is for show. I think that there is, and I and I, I think that there is more, still more behind the scenes cooperation than people might expect on certain kinds of issues. Um, for better or for worse, you know, and whether your reaction to that is, oh, my God, no, or, or oh, thank goodness, I, you know, depends on your perspective. But I, but I think that there is more than people uh, probably assume. I think that there is a, a different brewing problem, which uh, cuts across the board on science and technology issues, not just on cyber, um, and cuts across the board on a, a range of, of, of other sort of geopolitical knowledge issues, too, which is that as a higher and higher percentage of American PhD students in the sciences and math are foreign-born, um, a higher and higher percentage of CEOs of science and technology-related companies are foreign-born, um, uh, sometimes continue to have dual citizenship or, or retain citizenship in their country of origin. Um, you both we have a group of people who can't get the security clearances for the government to ask them to help with a variety of things, even if the government wanted to. We have a, we have a, this is a whole other ball of wax, and you may not want to get into this right now, but, but we, we have a uh, security clearance system we, that is pretty much, couldn't have been designed more effectively to prevent the United States national security intelligence apparatus from tapping into the incredible scientific, technical, and cultural and linguistic knowledge that is resident in this country physically. Um, you know, it's, it's just unbelievable. And I think that that's something, you know, when you listen to some of the public comments of uh, uh, the head of the National Security Agency, et cetera, that they, this is something that they will acknowledge, that nobody quite knows what to do about this because fixing it is all tangled up in various congressional knots and nobody wants to be the one who says, hey, we have to loosen this up and then somebody does something bad and there's a huge, the Willie Horton of, of uh, security clearances and there's a huge backlash. But I think that's a huge problem, that, that as our private sector as our private sector steadily ceases to be the kind of white bread American born fantasy that we once had, uh, you know, our own rules and regulations cut our government off from tapping into that expertise. Um, the only other thing I would add, just going, going back, I think, to, to David's original point about the uh, U.S.-China deal and why we might want to be skeptical of it, really goes to, to uh, you know, the point that, that you've just made, David, uh, which is, when we're looking at cyber, we're often looking at guys who started out in the garages. When we're looking at cyber attacks and hacking, we're also still looking at guys who are still in their garages or their basements. You don't – to make a nuclear weapon, it's really hard to make one if you're not a government. You know, you have to marshal, as the Iranians have discovered, it's really, really hard to do because you have to marshal massive resources in a physical location. There is stuff that is hard to get and expensive and so forth. On the other hand, the, the tools of cyber attacks are cheap. The startup costs are low. You don't have to have a government to do it. Governments, including the Chinese government, can't control fully, as hard as they may try, the private actors within their own borders who are using a variety of cyber techniques for what we would consider nefarious purposes. We can't do it either. So the ability of even if even if China said miraculously, 
gosh, we want an across-the-board deal. We, we must just stamp out all of this bad cyber stuff, and we're not going to do any more of it. It really wouldn't necessarily matter because qu quite a lot of the bad actors now and even more in the future are not going to be states anyway. Rose has gotten right at the core difference between those nuclear analogies we were using before and the cyber analogies. So all the problems in cyber are the same as they are were in nuclear. All the answers are different for just the reason Rosal laid out. So you can't have deterrence if you can't figure out who it is who's going to go pay a price. So we know how to deter state actors because they've got territory, they've got economies, they've got things. <laughs> Turns out that we don't know how to do that either, well, actually, but that's a different problem. <laughs> we know how to do it. Whether we do it effectively is right. another question, okay? And that worked in the nuclear world out there. But uh, as Rosa just said, when you've got criminal groups using these, when you've got um, companies using cyber weapons, when you have teenagers using cyber weapons, I don't know about your household, but in my household, teenagers do not sign treaties, okay? So uh, it's a very difficult thing to figure out what your structure of agreements would look like, which is why an agreement with China is necessarily limited. And Xi Jinping and President Obama made the same point you made, which is you can't control all 1.3 billion Chinese any more than you can control all 300 million uh, Americans. The second big problem that you get out of the fact that these weapons are cheap and can be developed uh, elsewhere is that the interest groups that are around where you can go put these and launch them are all over the world. So most of the attacks that we see in the United States don't look like they are necessarily coming from the countries they're really coming from. When the New York Times was attacked by a Chinese hacking group a few years ago, the last hop before it hit into the Times systems was in a university in the southern United States. Make it look like it was just your readers irritated. It. <laughs> or My readers are so irritated each day that, you know. Uh, but uh, think about the deterrence purposes of that. You know, you could go to the university and try to shut them down, but A, it wouldn't work, and B, they would know nothing about it. Well, look, it, what we, you know, what you're describing here sounds a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, we, we don't have a lot of high-level policy people who understand this issue. We've got a gap between public and the private sector where some knowledge does exist. Uh, we're really not clear on how to get to deterrence in this area. Are we setting ourselves up here not to use a nuclear analogy but one that even predates that – for a kind of a cyber Pearl Harbor where we get caught flat-footed on something? Will it take a kind of cyber Pearl Harbor, a big hack that shuts down an important part of infrastructure or causes a loss of life here for people to take this seriously? Um, or do you think we're starting to take it seriously anyway and, and, and we're getting there? Corey, what do you think? I think if the OPM hack doesn't make us serious about the undertaking, probably nothing will. I mean, it's such an enormous espionage windfall for the Chinese. And but the director of national intelligence, when he was testifying about this, specifically requested that we not use the term hack. Attack. Attack with regard to this because he thought it was the kind of thing that governments ought to be able to do to one another. And in fact, he said if we could have done it, if we had thought of it, we would have done it ourselves. 
I, I think that's that, Corey. I don't mean to interrupt you, but but just, the rest of us have. Already. But the rest of you guys, I'm yeah. happy to interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> but but let me just throw something in there. Maybe we can come back to it later. Uh, which is, it's a policy choice to decide to view activities in cyber that we don't like as attacks or cyber war as opposed to crime or just bothersome stuff we don't like or espionage and and I, I think a or vandalism or vandalism something worth discussing in and of itself are what what are the unintended consequences of choosing to frame so much of this in the domain of uh, attack and war and, and military problems what are what are the what are the ways in which down the road we might end up regretting that decision okay Corey all three of us interrupted you so <laughs> pick up pick up anywhere that you'd like I think Rosa raises an interesting point about the policy question of the description of this, right? It's possible you could, and, and here maybe the parallels are to terrorism, right? If you treat terrorism as a major catastrophic event and you, you divert an enormous amount of social energy to preventing um, terrorist attacks, that's a very different model a very different society, a very different policy choice from if you say this is the cost of doing business in a free society, we are, we are going to have to deal with these. Resilience in the wake of them is where we are going to optimize our social effort, our resources. Right? They're, they're two very different approaches. I think my own sense is that cyber, there is a certain amount of cyber that is just the cost of doing business. Right, because preventing every Chinese teenager living in their basement that wants the opportunity to get into Target's uh, computer database to steal credit card numbers and buy music, right? you're not going to optimize to that threat. Although maybe Target should optimize to that threat. As a government, we have to make a choice, and I think we are making choices. We are making a choice, as the director of national intelligence said, to keep open our offensive and espionage cyber avenues. And we are trying to criminalize the, the stealing of intellectual property. And there, it seems to me, the president's comments about the cyber treaty, it may be that the government's uh, choices, our government's choices, are optimized to protecting what our public, our private businesses are worried about protecting from the Chinese. And that, in a sense, the cyber treaty becomes like trade. You protect intellectual property, you leave the avenues open for espionage and actual warfare, and you tolerate a certain amount of uh, routine intrusion activity because, because the Diverting the resources to prevent it are too much. Well, look, that sounds that you know that sounds fairly benign. But David, you and I have talked about this in in other venues, usually restaurants. But but um, the the phenomenon that worries me a little bit is the shift from Cold War to Cool War. The shift from uh, a situation where during the Cold War era the cost of conflict was so high that no one dared enter into it, to a situation in the Cool War era, the cyber war era, where the cost of conflict is so low that no one dares stop. Mm 
and where we accept a certain amount of continuous degradation from allies and adversaries alike as a result of cyber intrusions, which may seem on the face of it as less threatening than global thermonuclear war, because it is, but on the other hand, raises the level of tension between all actors all the time and thus creates other kinds of, of secondary risks as a result of it. Look, there's huge background noise of cyber activity taking place every day. Some of it's criminal, some of it's espionage. One of the reasons the United States does not want to call out the Chinese on the Office of Personnel Management theft, no matter how big it is, is that we do a lot of stuff like that in China. And thanks to Edward Snowden, we now know a lot of what that is. And the Chinese have used it to throw back in our faces quite effectively. So then the question becomes, um, why is this more worrisome than the laydown that we just saw, that we just heard before from Corey about offense, the need to build up offense, the need to build up defenses. And I think one of the differences goes to Corey's other point, that this is where the technology and the policy all come together. So in cyber, there is almost no distinction between offense and defense. If you are going to build an effective defense, the only way you're going to go do it is by putting implants in foreign computer networks so that you can see an attack when it is massing. We now have in excess of 100,000 implants in foreign networks around the world. Many of them are adversaries. A whole lot of them are our friends. That implant is kind of like the port that a doctor puts in a patient. You could go into it with a probe to look around and see what's going on on the inside. The other thing you could go do with it, though, is use it to introduce a weapon. So when we see implants in our system, we worry that it's greatly hostile. If there's a Chinese implant in our utility system, we're asking the question, are the Chinese getting ready to shut us down? When we put an implant in somebody else's system, we say, oh, don't worry about it. We're just doing espionage. We're just looking at Everybody does espionage. And the Chinese look at it and they're saying, you're thinking about shutting us down. And you know what? In both those cases, the paranoid side of this is right, because that's how you do offense sometime in the future. So doesn't this mean that the only way that we can actually reduce the risks associated with proliferation in this area is some kind of binding international agreement, setting standards, uh, setting metrics, setting enforcement mechanisms in place, um, and that, you know, a la NPT, until we get to some place like this, it's going to be ad hoc. People are going to set definitions to suit themselves, and we're going to run the risk of constant escalation. Corey? Yes, I think that's right. Um, I also think, though, that, there's the, that there may be a public health metaphor in the sense of if you raise the floor of general public knowledge about cyber vulnerabilities and kind of basic hygiene ways to protect yourself so that so that the entirety of the system is less vulnerable that that's a non-trivial contribution to the to the general welfare of it but but I agree that yes um, unless we get standard practices that can be policed by governments 
and that can be attributable to individuals who can be held accountable by governments, uh, it's likely to remain the Wild West. One last, one last thing on this point. There's a really fun book called uh, Ghost Fleet, written by August Cole from the Atlantic Council and one of Rosa's colleagues at New America, Peter Singer. And one of the grace notes in it, the, the subject of the, the novel is the coming war between China and the United States, and cyber plays an outsized role in that war. And one of the real nice grace notes of the plot line is that, you know, the American government organizes itself and Silicon Valley gets energized to be a new kind of DARPA to figure out how to go after this. And what actually saves the day is the involvement of the hackers group Anonymous that doesn't support the American government but also doesn't want the Chinese to be the rule setters. So they're the ones who blow up the Chinese capability in this regard. And maybe one way in which we need to think about cyber is less as government control and more as as a sort of free-floating coalition of posses out in the space that have a common interest. Letters of mark and reprisal in cyberspace. There we is go. No, but 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 Piracy so absolutely no. I, this is this is it's a happy day for us law professors when when serious people start talking about letters of mark and reprisal because nobody ever talks about that. But 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 in all no, seriousness, no, I gotta this say, conversation has come up. I I, I gotta say. I, I was always pretty sure that the audience for these podcasts would be nerdy, <laughs> but but we are taking it to new levels here. And Corey, I mean, you've either established your nerd credibility or permanently shot your credibility as a normal human being by saying, I just read the most fun book about this cyber attack between the United States and China. I, I mean, and you know, and then all of a sudden, Rosa chimes in with, "Oh, letters of Mark and Mark and reprisal. That's fantastic." You, you guys lead really rich, full lives. We don't do, you? we do. And I also read Ghost Fleet, which is indeed by my New America colleague Peter Singer, and and it's a it's this really interesting meditation on a possible technological future. It's not the only possible one, but but it's certainly one of the five or six sort of most plausible future scenarios. Um, um, but but in the book, I will just throw in another little, uh, you know, um, spoiler in the book. Um, a guy who seems to be kind of vaguely Richard Branson-ish uh, pops up, and he, uh, this is the Chinese, have managed to take control of all the United States' space satellites. This, this is fiction, by the way, just in case anybody's worried about this. This is not like War of the Worlds. Don't worry, guys, this isn't actually happening yet. Um, uh, the Chinese have managed to uh, take control of uh, U.S. satellites, which means that the U.S. can't use GPS or anything else. And they've got the space, took over the space station. They're doing all sorts of mischievous stuff. And this Richard Branson type of billionaire who owns his own spacecraft persuades Congress to issue letters of mark and reprisal, just like pirates in the 18th century. Uh, you know, that the United States government would essentially commission private pirates to go out and go after the people we didn't like. And they would get a share of the booty if they did that. And meanwhile, they'd take out people we didn't like. And, and you'll be happy to know that in Ghost Fleet, this turns out to be crucial to the ultimate uh, uh, success of the plucky United States. 
Um, but but I, I actually think that there is a, a quite a serious point here and that Corey is right. I, I think that the notion that some sort of international pact comes even close to solving this problem is is it's likely, unfortunately, delusional. I mean, I wish it weren't, but but for all the reasons that we've already discussed, uh, the, the the relatively minimal government control. It's not that governments can do, can't can't do anything. You know that that as there is there is stuff out there. There is hardware, and governments can do something about controlling the hardware. But that being said, uh, I think that the the likely not necessarily our salvation, but the best defense against cyber mischief uh, in the future is going to come from private actors. It's going to come from companies deciding that they need to beef up their security. It's going to come from software engineers designing defenses and patches and you name it. It's going to come from little groups like Anonymous that decide to self-police in a variety of different ways. And it will be quite interesting to see whether, whether and how, and this goes back to your question, David, about are we facing a sort of a crisis of public-private cooperation? It will be interesting to see whether and how the United States government and other governments choose to formalize or not their relationships with some of the groups that are emerging and will emerge in the future. Um, because some of these groups will turn out to be much more effective for a variety of reasons than our government entities. Their interests will not necessarily align entirely with the U.S. governments, but they may align very significantly. And there, in fact, are legal, serious people, I swear to you, I swear, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fully descend into nerddom right now. Every now and then I, I do read law reviews <laughs> because Oof. Georgetown pays me to do it, goddammit. Um, and, you know, there are serious people who are writing articles about whether the constitutional mechanisms of letters and mark and reprisal might, in fact, have a new application in the cyber domain for exactly this reason. And I think, you know, don't be too surprised if 10 years from now we do, in fact, have... Uh, cyber privateers who are, in fact, proxies, formal proxies of governments. All I can say is you guys have done such a service to David Sanger, who walked into this room <laughs> thinking that he was the biggest nerd he knew and now knows it's no. not the case. What, what's happened here <laughs> is that, that Rosa and Corey have actually made me and David Rothkopf look like normal guys yeah. who sit around and talk about cars and as drink could, beer. As could only happen on the radio. It could right. only happen yeah, on the radio, right? right. So, so what have we learned? What have we learned from this? We've learned First, that none of us are normal. Yeah, yeah. We, we knew that going yeah, in. Listeners okay. probably knew well, that. No, let me let me guide you in this direction. I, what I'd like to know is if treaties don't seem likely and. Some areas might require new interpretations of old law, new alliances that don't exist already. Are there areas where real deterrence can happen now? Okay. So let's think about the three structures we've just heard about. So uh, from Rosa, we heard treaties are not likely to work. I think that's right. But there are some norms of behavior. And that's sort of where Obama was headed with Xi Jinping. And I think he has to be commended for that because if you can start with China and the United States, then you've got, you know, the two biggest cyber powers out there and you can spread it out from there. So there's number one. Then Corey came in and said, we need a set of sort of um, uh, personal hygiene when it comes to the cyber realm to protect your credit cards, to do good practices, all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, this is referred to in the cyber world as the sort of safe sex approach to dealing with cyber. That There are certain things you can go do 
and teach everybody to go do. And that's useful to protect your credit cards, but it's not going to protect you against a state-owned actor. And then there's the third area, which is where David was just headed, which is what part of this do you count on your government coming in to help you out by deterring attacks and by retaliating? Okay, The answer to that you can find, if you really want to get nerdy, in the new Defense Department cyber policy, which is about 16 pages longer than the old Defense Department cyber policy, which was two pages long. Okay, But what, what you'll hear from Ash Carter, the defense secretary, is the United States government might get involved in maybe 2 percent, the top 2 percent of attacks. I actually think that's probably a high figure. Um, and what he's trying to say is there's a moment, we don't know quite where it is, where an attack gets so large that the U.S. has to step in on behalf of uh, the companies or the citizens who are attacked. So think about this. When you are defrauded by another company, you sue them. But when there's a terror attack on your buildings in downtown New York— you expect your government to step in and do something. And what we're trying to do as a government right now is define what that 2 percent or 1 percent, whatever it is, is, and then what it is that you go back and do. So far, our record on that is pretty poor. Well, in fact, it seems like the main thing we're trying to do is to define what the 98 percent is. We're saying this is vandalism. This is not an attack. This is, you know, well, this is not our bailiwick. This is espionage. Everybody right, right. does it. Right. right. So what is the 2 percent? Well, we've only had one case so far where the president of the United States has come down into the press room, said we've had a cyber attack against one of our companies. It's intolerable. Uh, The leaders of a foreign nation knew about it, and they're going to pay a price. And this was a— Was was this an attack on a utility? Did it it bring down the cell phone network? Wait, let me guess. Was it possibly an attack on a company where the two leaders of the company were major donors to the president? And who made movies for a living. Critical infrastructure. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Yeah. So— See, I thought thought the movie itself was probably a form of cyber. Whoever whoever made that movie is obviously trying to undermine the United States. Well, that could well be. They certainly weren't undermining North Korea. So what's happened here is an odd case has made for sort of strange law here. And uh, the reason that the president says that he did that was that the North Koreans, in doing the attack on Sony— were going after free speech and American value, had actually destroyed bad computers. Bad movies, another American value. Uh, uh, <laughs> the, the right to produce a truly bad movie, that's right. Um, and they had actually done a destructive attack. I mean, we're all thinking about Angelina Jolie's uh, emails here. The fact of the matter is 70% of Sony Picture Entertainment's computers were left as a smoking ruin on the floor. Actually, let's be clear. We're not all thinking of Angelina Jolie's emails here. <laughs> okay. that's, what, that's what got the headlines, right, I should right. say. And people don't recognize this was actually what made this different was it was a destructive attack. And so then the question is, If Sony is critical infrastructure that we come in to go protect, what else is in that category? And nobody quite wants to answer that yet. Well, apparently James Franco is. Strangely, so is Seth Rogen, who's a Canadian, which is hard. It's hard to it's hard to figure that out. And Sony, by the way, the last time I checked, was owned by a Japanese company. And what did we hear from Japan about this attack? Nothing. Nothing. So 
we've got a minute or two left to wrap up. And so one is, you know, sort of in search of facile conclusions that tie everything together, because really that's what I try to do here. Um, successfully. But successfully, <laughs> right, right. Corey, as we look in, the, in you know, at, at, at this, if, if, a, if a presidential candidate were to come to you and say, I need one big strong idea that would say I'm going to handle this differently from the way President Obama has handled it thus far and, and suggest that I'm more serious about dealing with this, what would you suggest? Stop pretending the government alone can solve this problem and rebuild confidence with the tech community. Rosa? <laughs> I would say don't come to me because I don't have any big ideas on this subject. I would say go to David. <laughs> well, and so then the candidate naturally turns to David Sanger. And I would say it's time for us to develop a real deterrence policy as we did in the nuclear age where we explain that there's a certain category, and we're not going to tell you quite where that line is, that is going to bring an overwhelming response. And that response may not simply be from the government. It may also be from the companies, because they may be more effective at getting into the networks. But we have to have a credible threat there that people actually pay a price. It may not be a price that we're destroying their computers in return. It may be an economic price. It may be a sanctions price. It may be indictments. It may be some subtle form of cyber warfare that makes them wonder what just happened to part of their own infrastructure. And I think, by the way, that that is where the United States government is actually heading. And I think that in, as the U.S. government considered its options prior to the arriving at the deal with China, there has been a discussion that certain uh, companies that benefited from Chinese spying might be put on treasury or commerce sanctions lists that we might take trade actions and not say they're tied to cyber actions, uh, but nonetheless would be doing it for a reason that would be clear to them, uh, that we might take other kinds of cyber steps on our own that would send a message to them that we're paying attention and so, capable. David, I lied. I, I, I didn't. I do actually have one idea. It's not necessarily a big idea, but but it's and it's another idea that comes out of my colleague Peter Singer's book, Ghost Fleet. Um, oh my but, God! But, but I it, hope but, this guy is paying something for <laughs> Yeah, he should be. This. I'm gonna I'm gonna remind I'm gonna tell him how nice I was to him later and yeah. make sure he knows it. Um, but but uh, it's it's have redundant systems. You know, duh. This is not that. This is not this is not a geopolitical solution. This is not about deterrence. This is this is the same goes for governments as goes for individuals, you know. Don't put all of your bank accounts in cyberspace and have passwords that are known only to you. Keep some paper copies. It might not be a bad idea. Put them in a fireproof safe. You know, and that we do we do need to be doing the government and military equivalent of that. That we in our in the first blush of enthusiasm for electronic communications and cyber we became quickly somewhat over-reliant on uh, forms of communication that can easily be disrupted, that we are going to have to adapt to a world in which we build into our thinking the awareness that even the things that we think are ironclad and secure may not be, and that we're going to need to have military systems and other systems, banking systems and so forth, that continue to work if the software and the computers aren't working. And we may need to do one thing which David can devote a complete separate segment to some other time which is we may need to rebuild the Internet from bottom up because fundamentally it was never built with security in mind, and we're discovering there are only so many patches you can put into it. So you may need an Internet where it's clear who's at the other end of every transaction. Well, and 
that does seem like a subject worthy of another discussion as we move from 20 billion or so devices on the internet today to 50 billion devices by 2020 as a result of the explosion of the internet of things, which creates uh, many, many weaknesses uh, in the system that don't exist today, many vulnerabilities that don't exist today. You you, you kind of don't wonder, thinking on, Laura, uh, on, on Rose's comment, uh, that uh, that in the wake of the Snowden revelations, uh, some governments went back to sending messages via diplomatic pouches. Uh, some parts of the Russian government went back to using typewriters because they were analog and offline. Uh, Do you want to explain to your listeners what those are? Ty- <laughs> diplomatic pouches and typewriters. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we use typewriters here at Foreign Policy with our uh, carbon paper and our whiteout. It really has us at the cutting edge of the 1960s. Uh, in any event, uh, this has been a great discussion. I want to thank you, Corey, out there in the heart of Silicon Valley. I want to thank you, Rosa, and uh, all the colleagues that you promoted at the New America <laughs> Foundation today. I want to thank you, David, uh, for coming and joining us for this, and we hope you'll be back for another one of these in the future. And we look forward to all of you joining us for uh, the next of the Editor's Roundtable podcast. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us.